Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Look at Acts chapter 22, starting with verse 17. It says, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, that I fell into a trance. Now, if you remember, this is kind of part two of Paul's testimony. We looked at part one last week, right? He goes uh, into the Temple Mount area. The elders had told him, go uh, take a vow along with these four guys to show everybody that you're not preaching against the law of Moses. You're not preaching against the customs of our people. He does so, and he ends up in the middle of a, of a riot because he's been lied about. They said, well, you took a, a Gentile into the court, And by Roman authority, the Jewish people had been given the right to kill any Gentile or anybody that allowed a Gentile to come into that particular area. It was for the Jews alone. And so they lied about it. Some Jews from Asia saw Paul. They call out to the brothers that are there and they say, help us with this guy. They begin to beat him. A big mob forms. The Romans had built barracks right next to the Temple Mount. They were overlooking into the temple area. They saw this mob begin to do this. They immediately let the commander know. He takes two centurions along with their men to go and help settle this out. They rescue Paul. They actually carry him because of the mob and the violence of the mob up onto the steps of the barracks where Paul, for the first time, speaks to the commander. And the commander, who thought he had been some Egyptian guy who had led 4,000 assassins into into the desert and revolt against Roman authority, realizes Paul's not that guy. Paul asks, hey, can I, I, I want to speak to this crowd. Can I speak to this crowd? And so Paul begins to do that. And last week we looked at the beginning part of his testimony, how he met, to the, met the Lord on the road to Damascus, how he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how he was then filled with the Holy Spirit and then was baptized. And now we look at the rest of this story, and Paul is giving them an account says, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, that I fell into a trance, and I saw them saying to me, that's the Lord, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he, the Lord, said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, if you remember Paul's life, you can go back and you can look at Acts chapter 7, verse 58 in particular, where Stephen is given this tremendous message to the council. They're so enraged by what Stephen has to say that they begin to take him out. They begin to stone him to death. In verse 58 of chapter 7, and Acts says, When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul is giving an account. Paul now, who's been saved, converted, is giving an account to this mob who had just been trying to kill him. And he's telling them, listen, I understand what you're going through. I was just like you. I met the Lord, the road to Damascus, and have been radically changed. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 16, after the Lord met with the apostle, Ananias was scared of Paul. I think I would have been too. Lord, you really want me to go and talk to this guy? Don't you know that he's dragged people off and they've been put into prison, beaten, killed for their faith? You, you what? 
go to him, right? And we have a calling on Paul's life that the Lord places. In Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and following, says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Well, that clearly came to pass. Apostle Paul suffered a lot. Suffered a lot. There's a calling on Paul's life. If there's a calling on Paul's life and it's truly from the Lord, then God will sustain him in the midst of that calling. I love Romans chapter 11, verse 36, where he says, All things are from him and through him and to him. To him be the glory. From him meaning out of him. Everything that is true ministry is from God. And if it's really from God, if it's out of God, guess what? He sustains it. And if it's from him and he's sustaining it, guess what? It's for his glory. He'll take care of the fruit. Sometimes I think we forget that. We get so interested in trying to to produce the fruit or we get so upset that we don't see what we consider or what we measure to be fruit that we forget that it's something that's got to come from God. It's something that therefore has to be sustained by him in the midst of it. And it's not us that gets the credit. We have the privilege of pointing it back to the Lord and saying, it's really of the Lord. By any measurement thinkable from the world's perspective, Paul is an abject failure. Think about what I'm saying. From any measurement thinkable, with regard to the world's standards of success, what did he own? He didn't, he didn't have a Lamborghini parked in the, in the driveway next door, right? Somehow the health, wealth, prosperity crowd missed that one. I, I mean, Paul's being beaten. He's getting placed into prison. People are running from him. His own brethren shun him. And yet, God's called him to something. God's sustaining him in the midst of it. And clearly, through all the Gentile world, God has produced fruit through the Apostle Paul. And he acknowledges it. Remember when he first came into Jerusalem and he met with James and the other elders? They received him gladly. What did he do? Did he go around and say, hey, look at all the things we've done. No, he said, look at what God has done through us. Folks, that ought, to be, that ought to be something we cling to. Look, when we talk about calling, we're talking about getting in touch with God and what does God want to do in your life. We talk about a ministry fair and, folks, there's all kinds of different ways to get involved. Amen. I'm thankful for that. There's many more things that we're praying through and and that we're praying about the Lord leading us in and making sure that it's really the Lord leading us in it. And we want to encourage you. We want to challenge you even. Get in touch with God and find out what he has for you. Because he's planned good works for you individually before the foundation of this earth. The question is, what does God want to do in and through your life? What is God calling you to? Get in touch with him. Get into the word of God. Be in prayer. Lord, here I am. Use me. I'm simply a vessel through which your life can be exhibited to the world. Is that our prayer? 
Is that how we're walking with the Lord? My prayer is that as a body of believers, we're getting in touch with the Lord and we're letting him take the lead and we're saying, Lord, you're the head. We want to be attached to you correctly. We want to be related to you correctly. We want to be confessing sin. We want to be acknowledging the reality of who you are, the glory, the true identity of who you are. And Lord, would you exhibit your life in and through ours, in our attitudes and our actions, in the way we love one another? That's what Paul did, and God sustained him in the midst of that calling. Well, verse 22, as soon as Paul brings up going to the Gentiles, it immediately leads to conflict. In verse 22, he says, they listened to him up to this statement. This is this whole mob. Remember the holy hush? (laughs) They all settle down. I love that picture. The Lord just stepped in and said, y'all need to be quiet for a moment and listen to my servant. Well, they listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. And when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Well, Roman law was clear on this, that the men who were about to do this to Paul, If they carried it out, and then later on it was found that Paul was a Roman citizen, these men would have to go undergo the very same thing that they had uh, done to Paul. And so Paul knows that, and he recognizes that. Having been beaten numerous times, (laughs) I think he had this little card, and he played it. And he said, guys, I'm a Roman citizen, in effect. Is it lawful for you to do this to me? The crowd is going crazy. Understand the commander here. I kind of feel for this guy. He's put in charge of keeping the peace in Jerusalem. He's the commander over all the soldiers. He's not just a centurion. He's not just over a hundred soldiers. He's over all of them. And he wants to find out what is this crowd acting like this for. So this is their way of dealing with that. Paul asks this question Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. (laughs) I think this is kind of humorous. You know, God has a way of protecting us. God has a way of working through these things. He uses the Romans to save Paul, a Jew, from the Jews. And so God puts him into the Romans' care. Where is God taking Paul? To Rome. You don't think the Lord's sovereign over this? You don't think God is absolutely, intimately acquainted with everything that's going on in the midst of this? It's amazing to watch. I can imagine the commander's face. Do what? I mean, he thought he was an Egyptian assassin. I don't know how that fit. The report about Paul and how he looked. I mean, I don't think assassin comes to mind, you know? And in the midst of this, now he finds out potentially that he is a citizen. So the commander comes to him. He doesn't take the word of the centurion. He doesn't take even really the word of Paul. Comes to him, says to him, tell me, are you a Roman? Paul says, yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. He still doesn't believe him. 
You're kidding me. You're, you're a Roman citizen? Hey, I purchased my Roman citizenship. How did you get your Roman citizenship? Let's find out what your pedigree is. Paul says, but I was actually born a citizen. Oh. <laughs> right? Hey, I didn't have to purchase it like you, Bubba. <laughs> I didn't have to do this like you did. I didn't have to bribe somebody. I was actually born a Roman citizen. Man, remember he's from Tarsus. Therefore, those who were about to examine him, that's a friendly word, isn't it? Immediately let go of him. Because now we've upped the ante. Now we've upped the ante. Not only is Paul a Roman citizen by birth, but he's uncondemned. He hasn't been in a trial. He hasn't been convicted in a Roman court. So to do this to the apostle Paul, would have been to sign their own death warrants. That was Roman law. So as soon as they hear that he's a Roman citizen and they know that he hasn't been in a trial, he hasn't been convicted, they immediately let go of him because the truth is Paul could turn this on them and he could press charges. Well, what do they do? The commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains, so he he knew, uh (laughs) uh-oh, But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews. The guy is just relentless, isn't he? He just has got to understand this. I I really honestly kind of sense God working in this guy's life. I, I would love to know who this guy is, and I'd love to know whether he ended up getting saved one day. Because he just keeps pursuing the facts of this story. He wants to know. What in the world is this all about? Something's got his attention, and I think it goes beyond just the mob scene. Be that as it may, that's my interpretation of this. The next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released them and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. He's got some power. I mean, he, he commands the Sanhedrin, the council, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes. And he says, you get down here and you put a meeting together and I want to find out what is the deal with this guy and why did this riot take place? Fascinating. Well, thirdly, there's courage. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Have you thought about that? Listen to what he said. I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Boy, I hope all of us can say that. Before the Lord, our conscience is clear. We've done that which God has led us to do. We've walked in the ways of the Lord. We've walked in the calling of the Lord. We've walked according to what God has for us. Can we honestly say today, if we were on trial for our faith, that we have walked with a good conscience according to God's ways? What a precious statement. Well, Ananias didn't like it. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, and I don't think he said this uh, politically correctly. I don't think he was a gentleman in the sense that he was calm and 
Oh, Ananias, you whitewashed poor guy. I think Paul was pretty ticked. And honestly, I think he had the right to be. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. Paul says to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. (laughs) Isn't that great? I love it. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, how do we dissect this? Boy, people are all over the map on this one. What, what did, did Paul really know that Ananias was the high priest? Um, did uh, Paul get in the flesh and react out of the flesh? And as a result, he was apologizing and he was recognizing, oh, he is the high priest. I don't need to revile him. I mean, how do we, how do we look at this? I, I think simply put, there's two things here that are happening. Number one, Ananias is an individual as the high priest that represents Israel to God and God to Israel. And Paul understood, I believe, that that priestly position had been absolutely abdicated by Ananias. He was a mess. He's a Sadducee, and we're going to look at this in a minute. He's absolutely bound into Roman things. He's all about materialism. He's all about money. And so from the perspective of the individual, Paul is saying something to the individual, Ananias. And in effect, what he's saying is the same thing that the Lord had said, the same thing that John the Baptist had said. They had called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, broods of vipers, hypocrites. I mean, Jesus called Herod a fox because of the individual that was within the context of the title. And so Paul recognized this man is not a true representative of God to Israel, of Israel to God. And he calls him a whitewashed wall. It's interesting to note that 10 years later, because this very well may also be prophetic, 10 years later, at the beginning of the Roman and Jewish war, where the Romans ended up coming in and wiping out Jerusalem. The Jewish freedom fighters killed Ananias because of his allegiances to Rome. Fascinating. The second part of it is there's a positional issue here. There's a positional issue. He is high priest. Now, we don't know exactly what it means When Paul says, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, is he specifically talking about Ananias? Is he saying, I didn't realize that Ananias is the one that had me hit or struck in the mouth? We don't really know. He's addressing the council, maybe off to the side or wherever Ananias was. Who knows? We weren't there. But I do believe that when the bystanders brought up the issue of reviling God's high priest, that there's a positional respect here that Paul has according to the law. And he responds in that way. It is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. 
See, it doesn't mean that you can't disagree with the individual or you can't say that what they're doing is wrong. John the Baptist ended up being beheaded because he said what Herod was doing was sinful. But there's a respect that we have as believers for the positions of authority over us. And in that, we need to be careful. Because there's a lot of times that we confuse those two issues. We always have respect for somebody who holds that position. But that doesn't mean that we have to be silent about sin. Verse 6 goes on and Paul perceives that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. And Saul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. <laughs> this is classic. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, understand this. It's not that the uh, occurrence just happened. It's been there a long time. There's been a massive divide between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, Paul plays on it because he knows that it's there. So he divides, in effect, the assembly on their philosophical beliefs. In verse 8, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now this is fascinating, because the Pharisees, in many, many ways, are the conservatives of the day. Were they hypocrites? Yes. Could they strain a gnat? Yes. I mean, anybody that ties out of their garden, God bless you, you know? Especially when it's uh, mint or an herb of some kind. That's crazy. But they believed in the word of God. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in God's very specific activity in the midst of mankind. The Sadducees did not. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in angels. The Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife. The Sadducees took the Old Testament and said, we only believe in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch. And clearly with their belief about angels, etc., they didn't even believe that. They took the word of God and twisted it to whatever they wanted it to say. Does that sound familiar in our day and age? What we're seeing is people take the word of God and twist it to whatever they want it to say. Folks, the word of God is the word of God. And we stand on the word of God. We take our experiences and we place them under the authority of the word of God. That's it. That settles it. If God says it, that's all there is to it. We don't go on from there. Come on. Look, what are we here for as a church? We talk about ministry fairs. We talk about K groups. We talk about D groups, which are Wednesday night discipleship groups. We talk about mission trips. We talk about student ministry, children's ministry, ministry to families, ministry to singles, ministry to women, ministry to men. I could go on and on. Why do we do what we do? Why am I here? Folks, I got to tell you, I'm not here to be your friend per se. I hope we're friends. But honest truth is, my role is very simple. It is to say, what does the word of God say? That's it. That's it. And if the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't, great. If the word of God convicts, amen. Confess it. Right? I love that statement. If I offend you, then please forgive me. But if the word of God offends you, God forgive you. 
Because that's the reality of it. Can we do it with kindness? Can we do it with gentleness? Amen. But we stand on the word of God. And everything that we do, activity-wise at this church, needs to be grounded in the word of God. Because if it's not grounded in the word of God, why are we doing it? Why are we doing it? Because it clearly at that point is not from the Lord. Folks, we're living in a day where everybody, want to take, everybody wants to take the word of God and make it fit whatever they feel like. We can go through the gamut. And we can point the finger outside these walls at all the different people in the communities in our nation that aren't walking according to our Judeo-Christian ethic. We better be careful about that because there's three fingers pointing right back at us. And if we're not living it, if we're not walking, surrendered, and yielded by the grace of God to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're not loving one another as a result, what do we have to say to anybody? That's the truth. So let's make sure our lives, like Paul said, we have a good conscience, we're clear in our minds, in our walk with the Lord, so that God through us, his life can be exhibited in a way that the world realizes this isn't a religion, this isn't about us trying to have a fish hook and grab somebody and catch them and bring them in here, somehow manipulatively, rather this is about presenting Christ because we want to see people rescued because we've been rescued, right? I love the definition of evangelism that somebody gave. They said evangelism basically is, is one starving beggar telling another starving beggar where to find some bread. That's really good, isn't it? I think that's pretty good. So Paul walks through this. He divides them. The Sadducees are at war with the Pharisees because of their beliefs. Verse 9, there occurs a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Man, how does the, tur- the tables turn on this one, right? We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. <laughs> they, don't, they don't know exactly what's going on, but they're, boy, they're going to defend their belief system, Right? And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Verse 11 is phenomenal. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Wow. You realize this is the third time the Lord, really the fourth, but the third time the Lord has appeared to the Apostle Paul after the road to Damascus. We started out with the passage where after the road to Damascus, when Paul was in Jerusalem, remember nobody wanted to be around him, Barnabas had to grab him and take him and introduce him. At that point, the Lord appeared to the Apostle Paul and said, I'm going to send you far from here. And he did. He sent him far from Jerusalem where he grew in Christ strengthened as a teacher. Later on, we find that uh, Paul's coming into Corinth. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He's been left for dead. And he comes into Corinth, and the Lord comes alongside of the apostle Paul. And he comes to him by a vision. In Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 10, and the Lord says to him, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. Don't be silent 
For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Here's the third time. I love the humanity of Paul. Somehow we put Paul up onto this pedestal, and Paul himself says, don't put me up there. It's not I, but it's Christ in me. I worked harder than anybody else, but not I, but Christ. The grace of Christ in me. Boy, what a beautiful picture of Paul's humanity. He's fearful. Wouldn't you be? I sure would. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going on around you. You have no control over the circumstances. You've been thrust into this situation because elders told you to go and take a vow with four other guys. You know the Lord's sovereign, but there's still fear that comes into this. The Lord graciously comes alongside the Apostle Paul. And he says to him, take courage. Take courage. Don't be afraid. Why are we surprised when the world hates us? Why why are we surprised by that? Maybe it's because we've gotten so ingrained into the things of this world that we have forgotten that this really isn't our home. Maybe it's because we're so immersed into the world's system that we forgot that God's actually called us out of that. That's why we're called the church, the called out ones. What are some of the ways in which the Lord sustains us as we walk with him in what he's called us to? Well, clearly through persecution. He sustains us through persecution. John chapter 15, verse 20. Let me give you some thoughts on that. John 15, 20 says, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. We're not greater than the Lord. They persecuted the Lord. Why are we surprised when we take a stand for the Lord and we do it in kindness, we do it in grace, that people will come against that? Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and following, the Lord says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. The word blessed there doesn't mean that you're going to have a whole bunch of things. You know, suddenly you're going to have a bunch of money in your account that you didn't know where it came from. God could do that, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an internal blessing. He's talking about being filled to all the fullness of God. That we're satisfied with God and God alone, not in the things of this world, but in our maker, in our creator, in our savior. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. I like what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He doesn't say for the sake of stupidity. (laughs) He says for righteousness, for God's activities, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on, he says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or Matthew chapter 5, later in that chapter of verse 43 and 44, he says, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. I'm amazed when I hear stories like Pastor Saeed Abedini, and he's praying for the very men that are beating him. That's God, folks. That's God in somebody. There's no human explanation for that one. Blessed are you, blessed, filled all the fullness of God when you are persecuted for my name's sake because of righteous activity. 
God sustains us when he calls us into things and, and we walk according to his ways and we yield our lives to him. Even when we're persecuted, God sustains us. Well, he clearly sustains us through mental and physical stress as well. Persecution can be a part of that, clearly. But I love this verse, Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and following. He said, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. What a beautiful picture. You abandon everything for the sake of the cross and God is going to sustain you in the midst of that, even when you leave family. Romans chapter 8, you know this well, verses 35 and following, Paul wrote this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen? Right? My goodness, when we go through what we go through, understand that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. We realize that God lives in us. God is love, and there's nothing that can separate us from him. What a truth to hang on to. Why? Because when we begin to walk in God's calling for our lives and the activities of what that calling looks like, God sustains us. God is with us in the midst of it all, no matter what the circumstances are that he allows us to go through. We don't even have to worry about what we're going to say. Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, he says, when they, when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. What a beautiful truth. You ever face persecution? You ever have somebody at work that you're not sure how you're going to respond to when they tell you, hey, get into the word of God, get aligned with the Lord Jesus Christ, yield your way to him, yield your mind to him, and in that very moment that the Lord has allowed and has orchestrated, guess what? The spirit of God in you will begin to direct you as to exactly what it is that he wants you to say, if anything at all. Because sometimes the spirit of God puts his divine hand over our mouths. says, no, no, no. Not now. Not now. One last thing, our peace. Paul was fearful. Paul was fearful. And the Lord comes to him and says, take courage. I love John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, these things, this is the Lord speaking. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Catch that. In me. In me. Me. It's not in the world. It's not in the things of the world. It's not in materialism. It's not in other people. It is in Christ, in the Lord. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome. I have victory over the world. Wow, who is our peace? What is peace? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So all hell can be breaking loose around us, and we can be at perfect peace because the Lord Jesus Christ lives within us, and because of what he did for us by his grace, we are rightly related to the Father. 
Let me close with this because this is what Paul himself said, and I think it's powerful, especially after all the things that he's gone through, some of the things we're going to still look at in the coming days. But 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and following, he says, He said to me, this is the Lord saying this to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, this is Paul, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Wow, what are you going through right now that you feel completely incapable of doing anything about it? You totally feel weak. You've got no answers for it. You're fearful. You're not sure what to do, where to go. What does the Lord say? My grace is sufficient for you. Wow. Why? Because Christ, who is all strength, all wisdom, all love, everything for us lives within us. And when we yield our way to him, guess what? He will sustain us in the midst of what he's called us to be a part of, whatever that may be. What's God doing in your life? Where are you at in your walk with him? How's he revealing himself to you in a fresh way? Maybe he's allowed a circumstance in your life that's overwhelming you. You're even mad about it. But it's the very thing that God's allowed in order to reveal himself to you more so that you can be deepened in your walk with the Lord and understand what it means to walk by God's strength, by his grace, rather than our own strength. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.